Hey, Chris. Hey, John. I sit here across from you every week now, and we do the pledge. And I know the pledge is something that I introduced into the podcast, and it could be seen as a strange way to begin a podcast, having a pledge. Even though I do think it's important that we state for everyone to know that we take the idea of recapping this show very seriously, and that we do it in the name of what I like to call Odenkirk Life Studies. But I was wondering if maybe when you're doing the pledge, if you would like that little extra boost that might put you more in the neighborhood of how I feel when I say those sacred words. Uh, well, I, I guess that makes sense. I'm not sure what you're talking about. just want to show you something that might answer your prayers, basically. Okay. It's what I'm calling the Pledge Pal. Now, um, here you go. What? I recognize it's kind of bulky. This is the prototype, though, but it just kind of it kind of clamps onto your neck. It's huge. Okay. Now, that's not coming off if you don't undo both of the clips. They're kind of poking my... Uh, all right. You'll get over that. It's heavy. So the idea is it's voice-activated, Chris, and it's designed to encourage you as you do the Pledge of Odenkirk. So why don't you start doing the pledge now, and you'll see how it works. Uh, okay. <sighs> Odenkirk is my spirit wow, and... Chris, you're a big boy. Uh, all right. He is my guide. You really know how to use that pledge. The path to enlightenment... Get it all uh, over my face. Th- this this is this is making me very uncomfortable. Do you mind answering a little marketing question for me? Uh, Do you mean it made you physically uncomfortable? Or, or did you mean that it was emotionally and morally uncomfortable? All that. All that. It's creepy. It's creepy. Get it off. Okay. It's good to know. Let's start the show. Hey, John. Hey, Chris. So you feeling relaxed? I know you just came from a massage. Are you ready to sit back and have a nice, chilled-out conversation about the latest episode of Better Call Saul? Yes, all my muscles feel like uh, jelly now. It's fantastic. You said that your muscles feel like jelly. Do you know that the original title of this episode was Jello? Oh, that makes sense, because it ends with O and the Jello scene. But um, I wonder why they changed it if they had title that seems to work like that and be clever with the rest. On the uh, Better Call Saul Insider podcast, the one that is hosted by the people from the show, they talked a little bit about this, and it was because they don't have the rights to use the name Jell-O, or they didn't want to pay to use the word Jell-O. Oh, right. Right. And I don't know if Jell-O doesn't want to be associated with the show. Cinnabon didn't have a problem. So yeah, they changed the name to Alpine Shepherd Boy, which is... Obviously, a reference to something from the episode. Right. It's written by Bradley Paul and uh, directed by Nicole Cassell. And this is the first time this season on Better Call Saul that we've had a writer and a director that did not previously work on Breaking Bad. Hmm. So up to this point, all four episodes of Better Call Saul have been helmed by people that previously worked on Breaking Bad. But Bradley Paul and Nicole Cassell have not. Right. I wouldn't say that I would have necessarily pegged that, but I do think this episode, because of its nature, uh, the way that it tells the story, it does feel like much more of a straight-up dramatic episode just in terms of human drama, you know, right. than previous episodes. And the big mystery was, how is Chuck going to react? I thought it was great in, that in Breaking Bad tradition, which seems like a Better Call Saul tradition now, too, is to sort of pick an episode up exactly where it left off, you know, with the, with the, the, the camera moving up over the driveway, over the $5 bill with the rock on it up into the neighbor's window and you see her looking and now we see her looking and it has a different kind of uh, feel to it, a different implication because she clearly called the cops when she saw a strange guy in a, in a space blanket running across the street and taking her paper. I didn't take that so much as her calling the cops 
because he stole the paper, but more there's a strange guy in my neighborhood running around, leaving money, taking papers. You need to go check on him. Right. Something might be terribly wrong. So, yeah, it feels just like this is just two minutes later or something. Obviously, they, they showed how the cops had a reason to, to suspect something strange. I don't think it was about stealing the paper. I think it was much more about the strange behavior and the, the odd appearance of things at the house. Right. Chuck so wants to just be sincere and earnest and explain what's going on, and he wants there to be an understanding. That's the way I took that, was that Chuck was sort of you know, undone by his own, his own lack of ability to kind of bend to the circumstances. Well, and he's really afraid of opening the door because the police are covered with electronic devices. <laughs> and so he really is a, just a pitiful wretch. His intelligence doesn't help him out in that situation, I guess is kind of what I'm saying. That Chuck, who seems like a competent lawyer, you really see how, you know, just what we've been talking about all along, but this episode really just laid it bare is just how fragile the guy is. Yeah, that was my uh, take on it was just poor Chuck, poor, poor, pitiful Chuck. What did you think of Michael McKean's performance in those moments? He's just uh, consistently good, and and uh, Chuck is very uh, consistent. He, I like the, the glimpses we get of his knowledge of the law and thinking that's going to help him, which really, surely it's very rare you could uh, talk some police officers into having sympathy for you, you know, by stating what, what paragraph and what subparagraph of the law applies here you know which he does here and later in the episode he just starts spouting this stuff and uh i like that he's he's (laughs) he's a super competent lawyer like that but it it doesn't really help him in these situations well yeah i mean it's funny that in that moment it makes him seem like a crackpot but because they don't have the context of 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 him being chuck mcgill the 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 super competent lawyer so yeah to them he's just a a nut bar who who ran across the road in a in a under a space blanket, stole someone's paper, left a $5 bill, and now is lecturing them on probable cause <laughs> right, in a right. dark house, you know, and won't even open his door. Yeah. The neighbor seeing Chuck was the setup for, you know, this cascading event. Like, once again, Jimmy takes Chuck's paper. Um, Chuck has to go get the paper because he suspects what Jimmy might have done. Um, the neighbor sees Chuck. They're, you know, once again, we see that cause and effect, the ripple effect of things that Jimmy's doing. The way they tell stories on this show and Breaking Bad is uh, just cascading effects, like you said, of just uh, one thing leads to the next, leads to the next, leads to the next, and you never know. Uh, it's it's so labyrinthine. You know, it's not like a movie where there's limited amount of time and you can predict, well, there's only two ways this can go in the next hour. You know, instead, there's 10,000 ways this can go, and so you really just can't, usually see what what's coming up and to that point i thought that the way that the show jumped into the next scene it was just to me it was kind of exciting um because i i realize i have no idea what to expect from the plot at this point so when 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 jimmy goes driving down this long road to this sort of desert compound you didn't know who he was going to see you didn't know if you were going to understand or if this was going to be a character we were going to see more of i think his name was richard sipes big ricky sipes right i liked how they you saw how easy how easy Jimmy might have imagined it would have been for just a second. For just a second there, he's believing that he's about to get 500K up front and 500K (laughs) later. The guy wants to secede from the union and set himself up as an independent entity, and he says he wants to have, like, what did he say, this will be America's Vatican City? The Republic of Sandia, or something like that, I think is what he wants to call it. For a second, you see how easy Jimmy imagines it might be. And yeah, it seems like, well, this guy's rich, We're, we're in. But obviously, no, that wasn't to last for more than about a half a minute. And then the next scene, it did feel like we had stepped into a slightly more cartoony world, similar to the world we experienced when the Kettlemans were singing in their tent 
out in the wilderness. It's just like a little bit broader than the rest of the show. I don't know that that means it's not a fit because this seems to me like they're towing the line of just how cartoony it can be. Like in a, in a sequence like this where you're seeing different crazy clients, you'll allow something a little bit wackier. I don't want to see more of, um, of Roland Jaycox, the inventor of the toilet buddy. Yeah, I, I thought that scene was, was great fun, and I don't mind uh, broad characters and some silly humor getting in there. I think my criticism would just be uh, whether it fully makes good sense, because I, I couldn't tell if he's supposed to be uh, completely naive about what he's done here, because it seems like you know, all the phrases that come out of the machine are so on the nose in their, uh, you know, pornographic, sexy tone. These are exactly all the lines you would you would see in a dirty movie uh, uh, to the point where you think, well, this guy has to know he's up to something weird. Uh, but but then it seems that he's supposed to be completely naive about it. And so that's where I was a little like, well, I think I would, I would rather he, Either either he's completely naive about it, or he's doing it on purpose. But it was a little fuzzy which which way it's supposed to be. But uh, still funny. And then uh, and Jimmy just had to uh, run out basically. Right. Well, I mean, I, I I took it as the guy being very naive about the implications of of what he had made. Like the guy seemed like enough of a kind of a dork. And they just made the phrases a little too on the nose, a little too perfect for for what he was not going for. That's why I asked about whether you thought that joke was a little broad, because it did feel like it could have been slightly subtler and it would have fit more in the tone of this world. But again, I think when you think about the laughs that you're getting out of it and you think about the fact that the point of that scene was, okay, well, Jimmy's not going to strike it rich this way either. It sets up the idea for the next scene where Jimmy's sitting in Mrs. Strauss's house and as her stair chair or stair lift or whatever you call those... Stair climber machine. Yeah. Um, as she comes down the stairs in the background. And I've, I don't know how long that shot was, but that felt like one of those great, you know, one one shot things where it holds on something and you really begin to feel the way that Jimmy feels. He's fidgeting around in his chair and he almost can't believe she's taken so long. Yeah, to just, it just forever. And it reminded me a lot of, uh, of course, I've been watching a lot of uh, Carol Burnett lately. And, uh, you know, you, you remember <laughs> the Tim Conway old man character with the silly mm-hmm. wig where it just takes him forever. He takes like one inch steps to get across the room and the humor is just in waiting for him to get there and uh so it was like that because it takes her forever just to get to the bottom of the stairs and then get up and then walk across the room then she says i found the uh, alpine shepherd boy which we begin to understand where the name for the episode comes from it's it's mrs strauss's collection of hummels that she is leaving to various uh you know uh descendants uh, ba- based on conditions, <laughs> like whether they graduate from college <laughs> right. and that sort of thing. Right. For some reason, the detail of the uh, the lute playing angel was a funny reference. And then there's the toe-headed twins, I believe. <laughs> right. And I just love it that Jimmy's referring to them by those names, too, within the scene. That just shows you that, it, to me, it shows how long they've been there. Yeah. And, and seeing how long it took her to come down the stairs with the Alpine Shepherd Boy and seeing how many figurines are on the table uh, between <laughs> right. them. Makes me think, how many of these has she had to get up and go look for <laughs> while he sits there? But he's willing to sit there. I mean, this is what's sort of great about Jimmy, is that he really is trying to do the work. He's trying to honestly do work and get paid for it. I think the the rate he quoted her for setting up a will is actually a pretty realistic and fair and honest rate. Like, it sounded low almost. Uh-huh. But the idea that at the end of this montage where he starts off thinking maybe he's about to get 500K in a heartbeat, to he's happy to to see that the old lady's got cash and that she didn't take his strange offer he made without her really contesting him 
that he made like he said it would be 140 and then he said he'd take 70 now and 70 later and you could tell he was just trying to get some money and then the fact that she counts out actually the 140 that he was hoping for he's so elated taking that money i took that to be sort of symbolic of like oh he's glad to be just making some money yeah you know for for work but he's also still scrounging jimmy he's you know just because he had that money from the kettleman's we don't know how much of it he spent on the billboard and the suit um, maybe he tapped himself out. I don't know what we're supposed to believe, but he's still happy to have 140 uh, walking around money in his pocket. Yeah. I take that to be a real, a real sign of you know Jimmy has not he's he hasn't gone up an income bracket just because he he took a bribe, right? But it was a nice moment to kind of see him have a very a very mild um, and meager triumph. I also like in that scene where she says, uh, uh, you know, I thought all lawyers were were idiots, and he says, uh, well, they're not all idiots. You know, half of them are idiots and half of them are crooks. So. Uh, but he's kind of said something about himself there because he just said, you know, I'm not an idiot, but that means he's a crook. But she doesn't uh, uh, really catch on to that, I guess. So I, I understand what you're saying, but I think the implication there is he's sort of saying, oh, I'm not that smart. Yeah. Well, he also says in there, I like another bit in there is he said, I, I pride myself on my moxie, which I think is, is a perfect moxie is a great word for, for Jimmy Miguel because he's always uh, got moxie either with his mouth and a couple of times we've seen him put himself in physical danger. Uh, but uh, that's a very good descriptor for him. It is a trait that he exudes, and I think that, again, we're it's another reason why we like this guy. Right. Uh, after that, he seems to be happy to convalesce back at the nail salon, which, I'm again, I'm loving that basically his den is the nail salon, and Kim is there, and he's painting her nails in what I thought was a really kind of, there was something kind of hot about that. I like the way that they are sort of resisting defining exactly what kind of relationship Kim and Jimmy have. It's just more of the same flirtiness without progressing their relationship. Of course, yeah, he's he's touching her feet, which we know from Pulp Fiction and from real life is, you know, uh, a lot better than nothing. And uh, and then, she, yeah, she says something about her life being boring, and he's, he says, well, we should do something about that. You know, so it's a very nice flirty thing, but they're interrupted by the phone call, and so it, it, it uh, yet again doesn't. Uh, progressed anything more, but it makes you wonder when or if this will, this will uh, turn more romantic in the show. It was kind of a pleasure to see him recounting his misadventures with the different crazy potential clients, and obviously he's talking about the toilet buddy, right? And you know, making fun of that situation and doing you know uh, the funny thing is his exaggerated version was really not much more exaggerated than than the actual silliness of the <laughs> of the toilet buddy, right? No, his had a right on impression. Kim gets a call, I guess, from Howard. Yeah, uh, that uh, that basically to indicate that Chuck has been arrested. So once again, the cold open of the show it takes a while for the repercussions of that to catch up to the the other aspects of the plot. But here we have Jimmy pretty much right in the middle of the episode, changing gears from the kind of light, whimsical antics of seeing these these different crazy clients to having to deal with a very serious situation with his brother and his health. It's a bit of a cliffhanger oh he's about to find something out that happened this could be terrible uh and uh so that's a good uh uh cliffhanger cliffhanger for us a good uh, we could go on our take our, our break here yeah just like the show we're going to go on a commercial break at a very crucial point of high drama yeah people people will be listening to the podcast going what scene will they recap next <laughs> all right after the break <laughs> Thank you. 
Hey everyone, this is John reminding you that Saul Searching is part of the Second Course Media Podcasting Network and letting you know that there's a new show in the fold. That would be the Outlast cast, which you can turn to every week for a breakdown of the latest episode of CBS's Survivor currently in its 30th season. Wow. Outlast cast is hosted by Second Course founder Jamie Parrish and co-hosted by Spencer Clausen, who was a contestant on season 15. Wow of Big Brother. You can listen in every week as they record, or if you prefer, you can stream it or download it when it's posted shortly thereafter. Don't forget you can follow Second Course Media on Twitter at Second Course Media, that's 2ND Course Media, or you can visit the website at secondcoursepodcast.com. That's Second Course Media, a second helping of the culture you love. Well, Chris, how was that break? It was fantastic. I blew my nose, and uh, I'm all set to keep talking. I, I spun around in my chair and got tangled up in my, my headphones, and then I spun back around in the other direction and got untangled, and I'm ready to talk some more. Fantastic. So the next scene catches up with Chuck kind of in custody, kind of at the hospital. We're introduced to a doctor played by Clea Duvall, who I don't know if we're going to see more of her, but you know she has been in movies and... I'm not sure what people would recognize her most for, but she did bring kind of a, uh, there was a sort of quiet believability she brought to the doctor in that scene. Um, you know, she it felt like a real character. Once again, it felt like a character who had had a life yeah. outside of this scene. Um, but before we meet the doctor, I guess, we, we get treated to a scene that I really enjoyed. Um, I guess um, the best way to describe it would be we saw just how far Jimmy will go to sort of care for Chuck because he busts into the, the hospital room very kind of frantically trying to make sure that Chuck is okay. Yeah. You know, that, that the electricity is taken care of. And it seems like he, in those moments, he seems very protective of Chuck, but we also know that he harbors uh, misgivings or suspicions of, of a sort about, about Chuck's condition. So I don't know. How did you feel about that? Did you kind of catch that same vibe that I did, that he is sort of the guardian of Chuck? He's the guy that, that protects him, but he also suspects him. Hey, that rhymes. <laughs> yeah, he's being a good uh, advocate, uh, as you have to be uh, in in real life when your loved one goes into the hospital. It's great to have someone who can be there to watch out and make sure that they're not giving you the wrong drugs or too many or too few or that they're not just making you completely uncomfortable. And so he's being a great brother uh, in that moment. And uh, it's not, you know, we've seen a couple of hints just in the way he shifts his eyeballs or something that maybe he uh, isn't fully on board with all of Chuck's claims. But in this, in this scene, he's, he's fully committed to just being, you know, I'm here with my brother advocating for him. I'm going to make sure that everything's fine for him. And so he's not showing any, any hints here for the most part that, uh, that he doesn't believe wholeheartedly in, in, in Chuck's malady. Actually, I wanted to throw something out at you that you might not know, because obviously, if you didn't listen to the uh, the Better Call Saul Insider podcast, you wouldn't have this little factoid in your head. I did not hear it. I guess it's risky directing people to a podcast that has a lot of insider info when we have none. Right. But one of the things they, they, they talked about this time was the inspiration of Chuck as a character. The, um, Peter Gould and Vince Gilligan said that it partially came from watching the movie Crumb, the relationship between Robert Crumb and his brother Charles uh -huh. Crumb. Um, was not the inspiration necessarily for the character of Chuck, but the dynamic between the brothers, in that you have Jimmy, who is this crazy character, and he's got to be the caretaker of this even more damaged and more fragile person, who may be smarter than Jimmy, may be more brilliant in a way, but is less functional in a strange way. Yeah. 
in the same way that Charles Crumb may be more brilliant and more more of a genius than Robert Crumb, but the world would never know because Charles Crumb, you know, can't go outside. They right. said that it was a surface thing. They weren't trying to trivialize that character, but that it was one of the inspirations. And I thought, I know you're a big Robert Crumb fan. I thought you would appreciate that. Um, the, just that idea and I, the coincidence, I guess, that the name is Charles. I, I couldn't glean yeah. whether they had... They had meant that to be deliberate, but that does explain something about that dynamic between the two guys. Yeah. But I actually thought that that scene was very complicated in the sense of how much it accomplished. We come into the room. We see Jimmy trying to fix the circumstances in the scenario for for Chuck's comfort. we're, We're hearing Chuck kind of mumbling in the bed. The doctor comes in. We're getting sort of a admittedly kind of maybe I thought a little clunky a little bit the PSA nature of the description of what uh, electromagnetic hypersensitivity mm-hmm. might be it's like the stuff what we've been talking about over the last few weeks and that if you looked around online you may have found some information yeah. that they put all of that into Chuck's mouth so Michael McKean had to kind of deliver a Wikipedia paragraph yeah. about his condition yeah. um, but still it was the show sort of acknowledging yes this is what it's been building up to uh, Jimmy calls it a, being allergic to electricity uh, Chuck explains it a little bit more but you know Kim's in there. There's just the, the, I just thought that scene was incredibly complicated uh, as far as what all it entailed, what all it was trying to do, what it was trying to contain emotionally and expositionally. Yeah. Uh, what were your thoughts? Well, I love what you said about the the uh, uh, Robert Crumb and his brother thing. That's a terrific insight, um, and really cool, and makes you think. And I'd like to see the Crumb documentary again. I haven't seen it in a long time, but. However, I think uh, uh, you should not listen to uh, the uh, 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 the Better Call Saul Insider podcast. People should listen to our podcast instead uh, because they are, uh, at, like it says in the name, the insiders. That's the that's the official track. You know, you don't want to get who's going to. It's like listening to uh, uh, the government for your information on what the government is up to. No, you need you need <laughs> outsiders to give you uh, the real skinny on, on, on what to think and do about these important issues, right? So you think we should just call ourselves the Better Call Saul Outsider podcast? Yes, or at least that's how we should, we should couch ourselves so that people know, uh, yeah, this is where you go for the, 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 uh, the real thinking. What did you call Jimmy last week? A silly maverick? Yes. We're the silly mavericks right. of the Better Call Saul podcasting world. That's right. We're not the insiders who have all the actual information. But uh, anyway, I started to get worried right away in, in the scene when uh, uh, Chuck starts listing his, sim- his symptoms. Uh, I thought, to my, even as a layperson, I was like, oh boy, all these sound like the kind of symptoms that you, you think you have. You know, like so many things, like fibromyalgia and stuff, which, uh, you know, I think now everybody thinks that is a real disease. But it, there's, you know, diseases like that where all the symptoms are like, yeah, you could just think you have that. When you have anxiety, you could have heart palpitations and shortness of breath just because you think, I I think I have heart palpitations right now, you know. Burning, I jotted these down, burning sensation in the skin, sharp cold pain in the bones, muscle fatigue, you know, blurred vision, all that. It's like, I, I think my vision is blurred right now. I, you know, you just feel like it is because you're anxious. So I started worrying right then. And then, of course, the doctor did the uh, the bed demonstration, turned on the, the uh, electronic bed, and nothing happened. So that that clinched it for, you know, for the whole show now we've been leading up to we've been wondering is it real is it not real and we got some very good clues okay chuck believes in it uh but it turns out that even though he believes in it it really is uh, all in his mind
the big threat here is that Chuck could be committed, you know. Right. Or that he is a danger to himself, right. you know. His house could burn down. Every, everything the doctor mentioned to Jimmy was was very realistic. And it was maybe the first time I had thought about I thought of, you know, I don't know, maybe were you doing this thing where you thought of uh, Chuck's circumstance as kind of a cool character and how interesting it is to be in a scene where when you cut to his house, there's not going to be any electricity and it's going to be natural light and he's going to be sitting there with a blanket. Like, to me, I think about how interesting that is from a dramatic and scenic standpoint when you're watching a show. But in the real world of the show... You know, it is dangerous, right. and it is maybe a little scary, and maybe this person does need help in not enabling. I, I thought that was a, a an eye-opening scene. It was almost like a, a grown-up stepped into the world of this fun, crazy show I've been watching and said, guys, look at what you're doing. You know? Right, yeah. The the development here really yeah, made it clear for, for Jimmy, uh, we need to do something, and this is a lot more clarity that he really does have a mental problem. And, uh, and then I love how the next scene clears it up that much more he gets him home and they talk about how it's linked with any time uh he thinks jimmy is 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 backsliding you know turning back into uh, slipping jimmy that that's when he gets sicker and it's super underlined when uh jimmy tells him hey i think i'm getting into elder law this is going to be legit i can really help people and be a totally normal money-making lawyer and chuck is like healed instantly you know <laughs> he throws off the blanket and stands up and is 100 percent and says somebody's got to make the coffee and walks out and it's just so uh, loud and clear that yes these are even though he doesn't see it in himself he just said no that's not the it's not like that you know but then he he jumps up and and the scene is just telling you straight out yep that's how it is according to your reading he was kind of he was kind of appeased by what Jimmy did or Jimmy said, uh, as opposed to what I was seeing, which was kind of going, well, now I'm at home. I'm feeling a little bit better. I'm more normal now. I'm going to start trying to act like the big brother again. Yeah. You know, uh, but that in the back of my mind, I thought our wheels still turning is Chuck now kind of going, all right, I'll, I'll believe it when I see it, that you're really going to do this. But what you're saying is maybe, maybe more fun or more fun reading to say that Jimmy kind of flim flammed Chuck a little, he didn't really flim flam him because he really is going to try to go into elder law, which I love that term. But, uh, but he did flim flam him in the sense that he did sort of talk somebody back from a precipice again and it's just that chuck can't because to him all these symptoms do really feel physical it feels real to him so when you tell him hey when this thing is happening psychologically in your head you do have symptoms and when this is has stopped in your head that's when your symptoms stop you know he can't believe that he can't accept that so he says no no it's not like that and then jimmy tells him you know hey i'm i'm not backsliding, I'm on the straight and narrow, and it sounds convincing, and immediately Chuck is like, well, let me jump up and get some coffee, and doesn't even notice in himself that he's like miraculously healed in that moment. And of course now questions about why Chuck went from the man we saw visiting Jimmy in prison to the man he is today, and did in fact a nervous breakdown occur because of something Jimmy did, or you know what I mean? Like how responsible is Jimmy for, for Chuck's break? Yeah, how did he sink this low? So the next scene, he's talked about how elder law is going to work for him. I mean, I, I, I laughed out loud. I thought it was brilliant to see a reference to Matlock on this show, um, to see <laughs> to see Jimmy 
studying Matlock as a way of getting a window into what old people might want in an attorney. <laughs> it was just right on so many levels. I mean, I know that you and I have talked about Matlock. We love Andy Griffith. And if we were to say, let's just do a show where we recap Matlock episodes, I'd be all about that. <laughs> you know, we might actually table that for the future. But um, no, I don't know. That was such a funny scene. A, just a funny visual. Just him in the room watching Matlock was brilliant, you know? Well, and yeah, that he's designing his outfit like a 12-year-old would design a superhero, you know? Right, no, the drawing was great, but just him doing that research, but even kind of, you can see that kind of smile, that kind of smirk. Anytime we've seen him kind of engaging in a scheme, Jimmy gets this little spring in his step, and you can tell that he's he's enjoying that he's got a plan and he's got a line on this. Right, it's nice that it's kind of, it set, sets it in our world, too, to see that they have that show in his universe, you know, because it felt very much like it just uh, made sense for for Jimmy McGill. He, he, we know that he's always thinking, uh, how can I... Uh, tweak my image here to to reach my next audience you know we've we've sort of seen that and and uh, so it makes sense to see him acting that way it's just so cynical to me and funny that the character would kind of laugh to himself and say, well, you know what? The best thing I can do is imitate Matlock. <laughs> right. He's like Wiley e. Coyote chuckling to himself. If the episode had been titled Jello, this would have been the moment where we uh, began to understand why it was called Jello? because the Jello cups with Nita Will, Call McGill, printed on the bottom of the cup was just hilarious and brilliant. And the scene of him running around, pressing the flesh at the at the old folks' home was just... It was a great Bob Odenkirk scene because he's being charming and, uh, and doing these asides, you know, these little, hey there, young man, and all that kind of <laughs> right. thing. But it did feel kind of creepy, like a like an ambulance-chasing type of, of, you know, perfect skeevy lawyer type thing to do because... You know, you could be helping these people, but you also could be preying on them in their time of need. And so uh, I thought it was a, a, a good picture of a of a, a lawyer who's scrimping and trying to find his next uh, uh, victim, I want to say. But uh, what's a nicer word for victim? I read Jimmy as actually being in it for his clients. Up to this point, I have read him as actually being a very passionate lawyer about his clients. So I, I understand what you're saying. It is creepy. It's ambulance chasey. It's everything about what he's doing is kind of sleazy. Right. But I'm with you that he has good intentions. Right. He actually does believe he can help these people. The the uh, strategies you're going to make for finding clients are going to be kind of skeevy like this, even if you have good intentions. If you're if you're a lawyer at the bottom of the of the list and you're trying to, you know, get more visibility in the world. People need to have a will, right. you know. I, it, I, 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 there's no indication that he's overcharging them or that he's not supplying them with what he's claiming. Right. I, yeah. There was one, one of his asides. I don't know if you had any favorites, but I loved when he shook hands with one guy and you know pretended that the guy was squeezing his hand, and he says, "Watch out, that's my will writing hand." <laughs> <laughs> Extra bit of advertising injected. And again, maybe what I was enjoying about that was uh, uh, what we talked about before of, of people don't seem to enjoy his antics as much as we do. And I think I just enjoyed seeing somebody on screen enjoying him. <laughs> yeah. You know, enjoying him being him. So uh, the next scene we see is him going to one of the other elders that he knows, <laughs> Mike, sitting there in the toll booth at the parking lot. And, um, you know, he gives him his card, and we see that he has made his card. He's he's really plying this elder law idea, and he he realizes he may have offended Mike by suggesting that he's an elder. But he's and he says something about you know give this to any elders you might know, 
and uh, and then he drives off. Sometimes you're watching this this show, and it'll be three or four minutes from the end, and you'll be thinking like, well, what can they do? Where's this going to go? And it will throw in an entirely different, surprising wrinkle or a development that I didn't expect it to hit in those last moments. Right. And I thought it was just a terrific surprise that they stayed on Mike instead of following Jimmy as he drove away. Yeah. What did you think of that? Uh, well, we spent a lot of time with Mike. Maybe it was just three or four minutes, but it felt like a, like a a really good chunk of time uh, to the point where I was feeling like, I don't know if we've spent this much time away from Jimmy in the whole series yet, maybe with Chuck, uh, but even, but maybe not, you know, to a point where I said, Oh, Mike is really coming up as uh, you know, character number two or three in, in uh, how much uh, focus we're, we're putting on him. And it was interesting to, to follow his life for a few minutes there. We, we see him, Sitting in the diner, I believe that's the same diner where he met Lydia later on Breaking Bad. I thought that nice. Uh, they did like a time lapse from from night to day that showed sort of the end of his shift. I thought that was nice. I mean, all that was it just felt kind of mournful and nice. And 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 we know we're going to get to see more with Mike. Obviously, you don't bring him into this show without getting a little bit more. It was the first time I realized that we're kind of seeing his origin story too. Yeah. That as much as we are now getting the idea of how Jimmy became Saul we are now maybe going to dip into how did Mike, the ex-cop working at the parking lot, become Mike the fixer, Mike the right-hand man of Gus Fring. Right. Yeah, you could say that now our history with Mike is as relevant to where the story seems to be going as our history with Saul was. This episode ends with cops. I'm believing they're from Philly because Mike says you guys are a long way from home when they arrive at his door. But these cops approach Mike after we've seen his kind of lonely life. And after we've seen him camp out outside the home of a woman who, my first thought was, is that his daughter, the mother of Kaylee, his granddaughter? But then I realized, I don't know for sure, that we're supposed to believe that Kaylee's mother is his daughter, or whether it might be his daughter-in-law. The one thing I can confirm is I went back, and it does not seem like the house he was casing in this episode was the same house that he dropped his granddaughter off at uh, back on an episode of Breaking Bad. Right, but Kaylee might not have even been born yet. All we know at the end is that there's a woman who could be his daughter, uh, could be the uh, ex-wife of his son. And he's sort of stalking her, and they're sort of not speaking. Right, but she's she's she didn't tell him to go away and never come back. She didn't say, what are you doing here? She just kind of gave him a look. Right. It almost seems like there's a bitterness between them that they share less less than a creepy, stalkery relationship. Right. This last little three or four minute scene with Mike was very much like the vignette we got of Gene at the beginning of Better Call Saul. Uh-huh. You know, looking out the window, having this kind of sad existence. He picks up a bat to answer the door, which tells you something about his past and his worldview. Well, I will say, since we're wrapping up with that scene, and that is the end of the episode, this week we have audience feedback. Oh, boy. If we keep getting audience feedback, Chris, we might say this is a regular thing, but I'm going to call it the audience observation of the week. Oh. This was a tweet. Last night when the episode finished airing, I called for observations, and one person responded on Twitter. Awesome. With, I'm thinking we just saw Mike's daughter-in-law. This was a message from Violet Crumble. Uh-huh. That's at Rio Greyhound. And at that moment, I, you know, the episode had just ended. I was thinking that was Mike's daughter. And then I saw that and I was like, oh, okay, that makes sense. I hadn't thought about the fact that we don't know for sure whether that's a daughter or a daughter-in-law. So I will give that the, the audience observation of the week. Now, hopefully we'll have more than one next time. And hopefully maybe Violet Crumble will come back 
next time and make even more observations. But we also got a couple of emails, so I'm going to share those with you, Chris. Oh. It's very exciting. Okay. Very exciting stuff. It's fantastic. One email was sent into Second Course Media, and it was forwarded over. And this is just a nice message from Craig. I don't know Craig, and I don't know his last name. But he says, good job, guys. Very detailed and enjoyable. You always make me rethink stuff I thought I got. Ah. Looking forward to more. Cool. So, I mean, the one thing we can count on ourselves to be is obsessive to a fault, right, Chris? So, obviously, this guy likes how detail-oriented we can be. So, let's just keep disappearing down this rabbit hole. Okay. Okay? I don't care how unhealthy it gets. <laughs> okay. We'll just we'll keep at it. Do you think we should start wearing space blankets when we do the show? <laughs> uh, yeah, I've got my—I ordered one from Amazon, so it should be here in a few days. Let me know when you get yours, and we'll both wear them for the show. Okay. Last one, and this message actually leads into just kind of an unrelated factoid, but it's kind of a neat thing, and I don't know if our listeners will appreciate it, but this is the kind of thing you get on the Silly Maverick uh, Better Call Saul podcast that you wouldn't get on the Insider podcast. Yeah. Over there, you get behind-the-scenes insight and uh, the knowledge of the creators of this brilliant thing. <laughs> Who needs it? Over here, you get little factoids like this one. Uh, uh, this is an email. Now, this happens to be someone I know, uh, Joe Tropea, who is a writer and a musician and a, a documentarian. And he wrote in, Hey, John and Chris, I really like your Saul Searching podcast. I, too, was happy to see Better Call Saul give Bugs Bunny a nod with the Albuquerque reference. Here's another Bugs Bunny fun fact that has nothing to do with Saul. Uh, many people, myself included, use the term Nimrod as an insult because that's what Bugs Bunny disparagingly called Elmer Fudd. In fact, Nimrod was Noah's great-grandson, and he was depicted in the book of Genesis as a great and mighty hunter. So Bugs was belittling Elmer as a hunter on a biblical level, but that bit of subtlety went past my young mind and understanding. Being a staunch vegetarian, it's all one and the same for me. Keep up the great work and don't drink the cucumber water. Joe. Awesome. Nice letter, Joe. Thanks. And it is interesting to note that when Bugs Bunny calls Elmer Fudd Nimrod, it sounds like uh, when he says uh, nincow poop or when he says what a maroon or something like that. Like it just sounds like another way to say numbskull. But right. actually it is a he's basically saying, oh, yeah, the great hunter when he sees Elmer Fudd out there. Yeah, little, sarcastically. Rifle. Yes. But but when you were a kid, didn't you think Nimrod meant like dummy? Yeah, based on that. And, you know, I will say that that did get me to thinking, uh, are we going to, because I do think of Jimmy as kind of a trickster spirit, can we start to think about Jimmy as kind of a Bugs Bunny character at this point? Yeah, I think you could you could make that connection. He puts on different outfits to get out of a fix. He hasn't gone in drag yet, but he did do a little old lady uh, secretary's voice right. on his outgoing message. So if at some point there's a fight that he gets that he starts and it becomes just a big smoke cloud right. of fists and legs flying around if he's able to step outside of that smoke cloud and right. kind of stop and eat a carrot yeah. uh, while the smoke cloud tumbles off yeah. then you'll know that it, that I'm right but until then it's inconclusive right it's just a theory that he's he's somewhat of a bugs bunny uh like character but yeah you're, you're right we'll, we'll see how this progresses i mean he's less daffy duck than he is bugs bunny you, i could see daffy he's he's greedy and tricky i guess i just haven't seen him get flustered quite as much as daffy routinely does that's right he keeps it together more like bugs but yeah this is going to require more more observation and more analysis so we'll get into it more in depth next time we can take another uh, hour or two on it if you have your own observations about us or the show Please write us at saulsearching at gmail.com, and you can reach us on Twitter at Saul underscore searching. Chris, anything else you'd like to say before this episode of Saul Searching becomes that episode of Saul Searching? No, I think we did uh, did a pretty good job, and uh, I would call it a hot talk. Hot talk. Hot talk.